Well, hello, everybody. It is wonderful to see all of your shining faces. Um, even with the lights on, I can still see you, and I, I just, I love these nights. I love the opportunity to come and to worship with so many of you and have the opportunity just to, to see God move and to worship Him together. Um, if this is your first night ever at Elam Young Adults, we want to just give you a special welcome tonight. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of courage to come to a group you've never been to, to walk into a building that's massive, and to just come in, and, and we just want you to know that we're, we're so excited that you're here. Um, so if you're new, or maybe you just haven't been in a little while, and this is your first time kind of back, I'm going to give you... Uh, an opportunity to catch up. Over the past month and over the next couple of months, we're going through a um, sermon series called Check Your Heart. And we're talking all about the stages of relationships and some of the pitfalls that what to watch out for and some of the lessons that we can learn to kind of uh, put into the rest of our lives into different areas. And so far, if you haven't been with us or if you have, this is a little catch-up as well. We've talked about singleness. We've talked about dating. We've talked about how pornography affects relationships. And tonight, we're going to talk about a unique stage of life that we know as engagement. What it means to be engaged to be married. Where are all our engaged couples at? Are you, you're out there. I can see there's one there. Who else? Boom, at the back. Andrew, uh, he's engaged. And some girls are like, I better be engaged by the end of the year. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Gentlemen, don't let pressure do that to you. But, uh, um, but you might be worried because tonight you might be here and you might be, okay, listen, I'm not, I'm not engaged because either A, you're married, and that's a great thing. So engagement is in your past, and hopefully you never have to do that again. Uh, B, you're dating, and you know either it's fresh, or maybe it's just not even on your mind yet. Or maybe you're here, and you're single tonight, and engagement is one of the furthest things from your mind. But I want you to know and to not worry that, that just like the rest of our uh, sermon series and everything that's to come, I believe that there's a lot of stuff in here that we're able to, to pull out and kind of apply uh, to our lives. And so let me just start by, by saying this, that being engaged is absolutely wonderful and absolutely terrible at the exact same time. It really is. It's, it's this weird stage of life that's really not like anything else. And, and, you know, if you're at the very beginning of your engagement, you might disagree with me. You might think it's just amazing. But once you get a little bit further along, you start to realize that this is, ah, it kind of sucks actually a little bit. Because I remember being engaged to Morgan, my, my now wife, and there were some amazing things, absolutely amazing. It was so much fun uh, planning our future together. It was fun dreaming about our wedding and what our lives together would look like. It was really fun getting to go to like stores and use that bloopy gun and bloop stuff for our registry. Um, that was awesome. And once I snuck away and managed to register at Canadian Tire, and bloop a lot of tools. I didn't really get any, but it was worth a try. You see, being engaged to Morgan was fun because, because I love her, and we're really good friends, and it was a fun adventure together. But, but if I'm going to be honest with you, there was parts about it that really, really stunk. And what could that possibly be? Well, the thing about engagement that's kind of weird is you're almost married, but you're not married, which means that there's some things you can't do that married people get to do. And for those of you who 
aren't picking up what I'm putting down. Sex. <laughs> we couldn't have sex. And that really stunk. Because it was tough. Because, I mean, how much closer did we need it to be? And, and, and your mind starts racing and you start justifying. And you go, I mean, we're, we're engaged to be married. I mean, when Jesus was walking the earth, there wasn't even such thing as a legal, you know, federal marriage. So, I mean, this is basically the same thing. And you start to wonder, is marriage really about the ceremony? Is it about the piece of paper? What is it about? And, I mean, those were all questions I raised. My wife just simply said no every single time, or my, I guess, fiancé at the time. And I just, it was so frustrating. It was so frustrating trying to find that line and, and knowing as the days got closer that we were going to be married. So what did it matter if we, you know, kind of snuck in a little bit and like got a little extra handsy or something like that, right? Like, but there was a, we just couldn't do it. And, and it was frustrating. That was one aspect of engagement that was difficult. The, the next one was that we talked about the wedding all of the time. I mean, I fell in love with a woman named Morgan, and then all of a sudden I put an expensive ring on her finger, and then I was married, or I was dating and in a relationship with Morgan, and this wedding that was coming. And I just couldn't shake the two. I mean, just in case you don't know this, weddings can become all-consuming. They can beat you down and steal your soul, and they can make you a slave to them if you let them. Absolutely. Weddings can be so, so, so overwhelming if you let them. And let me be totally honest, most people become whelmed. Which, by the way, is the exact same thing as overwhelmed. Look it up. But let me just, I'm just going to take a break right now. This is like not Luke preacher hat. This is Luke just like advice hat, like dating engagement relationship advice. Gentlemen, if you are engaged or if you ever want to be engaged, don't be that guy that pretends like it's not your wedding. You know what I'm talking about? The guy that lets the woman do everything and expects her to do everything. Be, step up. Be that guy. Decorate those cupcakes. Emboss those invitations. Do it for more than brownie points with your mother-in-law. Do it because it's your wedding too. Step up. Just a little, be a man. The point I'm really trying to make with this kind of introduction is that, like many seasons of life, there's this balancing act of positive things and negative things. But tonight I want to give you some tools to maximize this portion of your life. But really what I'm talking about is not engagement at all, but it's just about what it means to live a Christian life. And so here, make prep one of the perks. It's so easy to think that, that the preparation of any big thing that happens in our life needs to be exhausting and it needs to be no fun at all. Now, I know there's some type A personalities in the room that think that is even crazy to think, that preparation's the best part about the whole thing. And you know what? Those people exist, but they're weird. <laughs> because preparation is not the fun part. It's getting to enjoy the thing that you've prepared for, Right? But actually, I don't think that that's true. I think that God has shown us that preparation is just as important as the event. And so when we were engaged, Morgan and I spent a lot of time dreaming and a lot of time thinking about our wedding, and there was a lot of prep to do. A lot of prep. If you're married in the room, you know what I'm talking about. 
We had to book a venue, find a pastor, make a guest list, create invitations, send invitations, bug people to respond to the invitations, pick the food, find the cake, say yes to the dress, get our groomsmen and bridesmaids sorted out, find tuxes, choose a ring bearer, choose a flower girl, decide on colors, pick music, find a DJ, choose supplies and then get them, do counseling, write our vows, and about a million other things that you have to do. It's overwhelming. They say that love is the key to a beautiful wedding. (laughs) Preparation is the key to a beautiful wedding. But if that wasn't enough, prepping for a wedding is actually one of the least important parts of getting married. It's one of the least important parts. And you might be thinking, why? Well, because the wedding comes and goes but the person that you marry stays with you, hopefully forever. And so preparing for marriage should cast a large shadow over preparing for a wedding. You see, a wedding can simply be a, a thin veneer of love fitted over a relationship that could be rotting on the inside. And I'll just say this, never let, never let a beautiful, extravagant wedding be your litmus test for what you think a healthy marriage is. Preparing for a marriage is far more difficult than preparing for a wedding. It requires some key components and characteristics. It requires intense honesty. It requires complete transparency, selfless attention to the relationship and the other person. It requires unconditional love. It's a lot of work. But if we strip it back, we we begin to realize that that's really the key parts of every relationship. It's not just a soon-to-be-married relationship. And if we want to be people, if we want to be men and women that gather in this place, if we want to be people that uh, want to develop meaningful relationships that stand the test of time, we have to be willing to do the hard work. We have to be. We have to be willing to do those things to do the preparation. Because being engaged and being in relationships with other people can cause us to begin to see the world through a lens that says preparation is just a necessary evil. But it needs to become more than that. The engagement period for a married, soon-to-be-married couple needs to become a time that they not only extract maximal efficiency, but it needs to be something that they enjoy. And really, I think that that fits into every stage of our life. Every stage of our life, we need to be in a position where we not only try to take out everything we can, but we actually learn to enjoy it. And we talked about that earlier. Because when I was engaged to be married to Morgan, I had this deep sense that we were fully committed to one another. So it it made it hard to draw this line between things like sex, things like boundaries, and even little things like how to deal with our families and holidays and all that kind of stuff. But when you're engaged, I want you to catch this, there's this underlying truth that there are aspects of your future that you get to enjoy now. Things like a complex and all-encompassing love, a shared future, Uh, increased intimacy as you dream together, among a multitude of other things. So hear this, that when you're engaged, 
you get a taste of what's to come. You get a taste of what it's going to be like to be married as you plan your future and talk about bank accounts and talk about where you might live and what you might do and what kind of children, you know, you hope to raise and and how many and and lots of different things and whether you're going to be a minivan guy or an SUV guy. And I swore I was going to be an SUV guy, but now I drive a minivan with a Disney sticker on the back that says uh, princess inside. (laughs) I think it's referring to me. Uh, But there's this one truth on one side, but then there's this other truth that says this, that the fullness of marriage can't be recognized and can't be realized until you're actually married. Even if you pretend to be married. And let me explain it this way. I, I, I performed a wedding ceremony a number of years ago for a couple who were living together. They had a couple of kids Uh, They owned a home. They both had careers. By all intents and purposes, they were living um, the the basic kind of North American life together. They they hadn't really chosen to be married, but for some reason along the way, they decided that they wanted to get married. They wanted to take that step, and so they approached me. I was a friend of theirs and walked them through some premarital counseling, and one of the things I told them up front was that it's going to change when you get married. And they said, that doesn't make any sense. We are married. Like, we're, we're basically, we're common law. The state sees us as married. You know, we have two kids. We have a home. We have two vehicles. You know, we've got everything that's going on that any married couple should and could have. And I said, yes, you're right. But there is something about committing to someone through a ceremony before God and other people that changes the game. And what was so cool was that after, a, after about six months of, of being married, I got together with them to kind of do a follow-up and to talk, and, and they totally agreed. They totally, they, they came back with that exact thing that I had told them. They said, we don't know what it is, but there's something different in our relationship. There was this, there's this increase of this sense of commitment. There's a deepening of responsibility, even as parents. There's this thing that we, we feel like we need to work together towards the future that we really hadn't really thought of in this way, for some reason there was this greater fear of failure and this, this sense that marriage had taken their relationship to the next stage, even though they were pretending to live as a married couple before that. And I think that it's, it's just like our discussion on sex just a few weeks ago where we, we talked about... Um, you know, the idea that when we move the needle of our relationship or, or, you know, we talked about the idea of like financing our future and and moving our relationship beyond the capacity that it can bear, beyond the state that you have earned, if you will, that when you do that, you agree to pay an unknown amount of interest. That means you sign up for something that you don't really yet know because you move the relationship beyond what it can bear. And I believe that that's true of so much more than just marriage. I mean, we often find ourselves in situations of our life where we wrestle with where we're at. And we talked about being content. But there's something, there's another stage beyond that that I think engagement really shows us. And I think it, it shows up in many other areas of life. Like, things like this. Like, how easy is it to dream about the future when you don't have a stake in it? How easy is it to look at someone else's business or someone else's uh, life and you look at them and you begin to judge them and you begin to think, oh, you know, I would do things differently if I were in their shoes. Not even knowing what kind of shoes they're wearing. You know, having no idea. 
it's so easy to look at every other person and think that you would do things differently. I mean, how many of you here have a boss that you are certain that if you took his or her position, you would do better than they would? Okay, everybody got real humble all of a sudden. You've all thought it. Except for me, Pastor Marvin, if you watch this later. I don't think that. <laughs> but like at some point in our life, we have had somebody in our life that, that, that we looked at and we thought, I could do better. And we do it with ourselves too. We look at our current state and we go, you know what? This sucks right now, but in X amount of time, it's going to be better. You know, once I get that degree, once I get that job, once I get that girlfriend or boyfriend, once I do these things, my life will be better. But I think that Jesus teaches us something in Scripture that's really important. And it's this idea of what theologians have called the now and the not yet. It's an approach to theology. It's the study of God that, that says the kingdom of God is both happening now, we are experiencing it now, but it's not yet come to its full completion. It's not yet all the way that it's supposed to be. It's like being engaged. We know that it will come and we know that the elements of marriage, we get little pieces of it now, but we know that it's not yet fully made known until the day that you actually get married. And we read in 1 John 3, 2, and if you were with us for the retreat this weekend, you'll know that we read through this portion of Scripture, and it says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see, there's two points here. There's two parts happening in this Scripture. There's the one, the now we are children of God. That is the now. That is happening right now. We are the children of God. Can I just tell you right now that if you're in this place and you're not sure if you belong to God, all it takes is a simple confession and then you become his child. You become adopted into his family and your life changes. But there's also this reality of the not yet. John talks about how we, will, we shall be like him. There's this allusion to something that's coming. In John 18, 36, Jesus is speaking to Pilate before he goes to trial, and he says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus tells us here that there is a kingdom coming, that the kingdom that Jesus comes from has not yet been on earth. He says, if it was here, everyone would fight for me because they would see what it is. But it's missing something. But then we read in Romans 8.30 that Paul tells us that who God has justified through Jesus on the cross, he's also glorified. Past tense. In Ephesians 2.6, uh, Paul also writes that we have been raised up with Christ and we're already seated with him in the he heavenly realms. You see, this, this language conveys this sense that it's already done. It's already finished. The end is written. Our place has been set. Yet we know, if we look around, as great as our world is, we know that we're not sitting in heaven with God. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean? And I think it comes back to what Jesus is teaching. All throughout the Gospels, there's this idea of the now and the not yet. There's the idea of what we have, and what we have is this world, 
And what we have is the reality of Jesus Christ, the way that he has revealed himself to us now. But we also know that there's something else coming, something better coming. You see, it's the reality that our spiritual understanding of God now doesn't yet meta, meet up with our future physical reality. In the future, we know if we read scripture that there's this beautiful, magnificent kingdom that's coming and there's this promise that we are going to be there with God, but yet we know that we struggle. We know that in this world, in this body, in this place, that we have a hard time, that we have painful experiences, that sometimes life hurts and sometimes life just sucks. And we know that something deep down inside of us is gnawing away at us, telling us that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. If you get real honest for a second, you can look at your life and you can look at where you are and you can say to me right now, I'm sure, that it's not exactly the way that God intended it to be. There's something in me, there's something that I'm doing, there's something that I'm believing that's, that's not exactly the way that God would have it for me yet. And that's on one hand. But on the other hand, we see that this world also contains beauty. That there's breadcrumbs of heaven all around us. I think Pat said it so well this weekend at our retreat. He said there's, there's slices of heaven around for us to pick up if we look for them. And I love that. Because it's true. Because on the one hand, we know that it's not yet. We know that there's something that's missing. We know that if this is it, if this is the last thing, if this is the only thing we have to live for, that this isn't enough. It doesn't matter how good we get it. It doesn't matter how amazing our life ends up. Eventually, we know that this is not it. But on this hand, we see those slices of heaven. We see those moments of absolute pure joy where we know without a shadow of a doubt that God is looking down on us and he's smiling on us. And we have to live in that tension. We have to live in that place where these two realities exist simultaneously. And that can be a hard place to live. But I remember when I was engaged to Morgan, I made the choice that I was going to enjoy our present reality. No matter how stressful wedding planning got, no matter how frustrating it was navigating all of those familial issues and trying to figure out who can sit at what table and all of that kind of stuff, I just knew that I wanted to, in those moments, I wanted to enjoy every second because I knew that it was one more second that I was losing. A simple thing, Morgan and I made a pact we made a pact to go on dates and not talk about the wedding. We did. We would go out and we would say no talk. And as soon as somebody mentioned it, we'd have to catch them and say, nope, we're not talking about the wedding. And we would actually date one another. We would sit and we would talk and we would get to know each other more deeply. We pressed into our relationship and we continued to get to know one another. Because... I realized this one day when I was looking at her in one of those moments of Twitter patient where I just loved her and I just felt so warm and fuzzy. I looked at her and I realized I didn't have to marry her. I got to marry her. And it was that moment that I looked at her and I realized that this is what I'm working for. This is what I'm working towards is something better and something bigger than just me. 
what a shame it would have been if I would have taken an eight-month sabbatical from my relationship with my fiance to prepare for a wedding, right? What a shame that would have been. And I think the same is true with life, my friends. If you're living for the next stage, if you're just waiting from, for some big event to happen, and you don't invest time in the preparation, and you don't find a way to somehow manage to live in that tension of the now and the not yet, you're going to miss out on the real beauty of life. It's going to pass you by. Because God may be found on the mountaintops, and God may be found in those big moments of transfiguration that we read in, about in Scripture, but you know what? God is also found in the valleys. And God is found in every place. God is found in the mundane things of life. He's found in the everyday things of life. And I think sometimes we think that God's far from us, and we think that we just have to get to that next big moment in our Christian walk. You know, we've checked baptism off our list, some of us. We baptized three people this weekend at the fall retreat. Isn't that good? That is awesome. Three people chose to follow Christ. You know what? That's a big moment. Now, if those people, if Rachel, Yaddick, and Mariel now look at their life and they go, okay, well, what's the next big milestone? They're going to miss out on so much of God in between because when we sense that God is far away or we sense that God's at the next milestone, you see, that's a perception problem. That's not a presence problem. You see, God's not gone. God's not there waiting for us. God is here. God is beside us. But when we begin to live life with this kingdom perspective, when we begin to live life that, you know what, there's both the now, but there's also the not yet, and there's this beauty of living in between, we realize that, that, that there's more to live for. You see, we're living in the days of the coming kingdom. And and I mean, Jesus says this to the Pharisees when they ask him point blank, when's the kingdom of God coming, man? Because Jesus showed up and the Pharisees said, if you're the Messiah, where's your army? Where's your throne? Where is your temple? Where are all the things that we know to be true of the Messiah? Where are they? And so they ask him, when is the kingdom coming? And this is what Jesus says. The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is. And catch this, I love this. This is Jesus' like biggest flex on all his people. He says, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. He's like, listen, you're looking for this thing. You're looking for this regime. You're looking for whatever it is, but you're missing out, man. I'm standing right in front of you. The kingdom of God is right here. That's Jesus talking to these people, these people that claim to know him, these people that set up laws and and really help shape the fabric of the Jewish world. And they stand there and they cannot see Jesus as the king because they are too busy looking forward to a future that they can't have yet. You see, Jesus is our connection to the kingdom and it's open to each one of us. Scripture tells us that that the church of God, us, the people, we are the bride of Jesus and he is the groom. And it's this imagery that shows us a couple of things. And the first one really is just practical. I I think that God wants to show men how to treat their wives. 
And, you know, you, you might think that sounds patriarchal or whatever you want, but let me tell you something, that when men start treating their wives the way that they're supposed to be treated, when men start treating women the way that Jesus treats the church, let me tell you the world changes, my friends. It changes. We don't have a toxic masculinity problem in this world. We have a lack of masculinity, of real masculinity, of men that would step up and would say, I want to be like Jesus and I want to love the people around me the way he does. Men that walk into their families and walk into their homes and they say, I choose to love you the way that Jesus loves the church. And friends, that's sacrificially, that's unconditionally, that's far beyond anything our little brains can understand. Yet when men step up and they do that, I believe that the world changes. And women, that doesn't mean we, you don't have a part to play. I would just say this to you right now. If there's a man in your life and he doesn't love you the way Jesus loves the church, dump him run away, demand something more, realize that you are a precious daughter of the king and you deserve more than the scraps and the leftovers by some man. Come on. <laughs> I think we see so much of the way that our world should be by the way that Jesus loves the church. And let me just say it this way, sometimes, sometimes it's easier to understand something by looking at the inverse of it. Jesus could have done all sorts of things when he came to earth. Instead of laying down his life. Instead of taking his own life to pay for the sins of the many. He could have subjected us to criticism. I mean, churches are full of things to criticize. Pastors are full of hypocrisies. People that sit in the pews. He could have pointed out our weaknesses, which are many. He could have worried about our problems. Would we abandon sound doctrine? Would we get lost in the pursuit of worldly influence? Would we lose the next generation because of our lack of zeal for the gospel? He could have even outright condemned us and rightly dismissed us as unworthy. But when Christ looks at us, when he sees us as his church, he brings praise and encouragement and love. And with that love comes correction, don't get me wrong. But it th comes through the lens of unconditional love. So we see that being engaged to be married, when we talk about what that means, it actually holds a part of the combination that unlocks a life that radiates Christ to the world around us. It's about preparing for the future while finding a way to enjoy our present. It's about investing in people and not in the program. And it's about the kingdom of God that's now, but not yet. But there's a piece to this puzzle that we're missing. And we, we read it at the retreat, like I said, in 1 John 3, verse 2. It says, and we've read this already, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But if you were with us at the retreat, you know that I keep encouraging you to, to continue reading. What is going on in the verse that we pick up? Because we love that verse. Because we love that verse because the middle's cut out. We are children of God, and we love that. 
And it's, it's great to live there, and it's not wrong. We are children of God. We are loved. We are cared for. God has a plan and a purpose for you. All those beautiful things. And you know what? On this side of the continuum, we have this everlasting life that we see Christ as he is, and we see ourselves fully made known in him. But we like this verse because the space between is cut thin. But if we continue to read in 1 John, this is what we come across. We see that he goes on to say, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Catch this, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does, do, the one who does what is righteous is righteous, just as Christ is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because we have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. John goes on a little later to write that, that the one who does not love his brother is a murderer, and we know that murderers do not have eternity living in their hearts. You see, we like to cut out the middle. We like to get to the thing that we want to get to. But if we read what John has here, and when we read Scripture, we begin to see that there, there is a work that's involved. There is an element that requires our effort. Because John says that all who have this hope, all that have this hope that one day we will not just be children of God, but one day we will see him as he is because we will see ourselves in him in the fullness of his flesh and his being. He says those who hope in that purify themselves as he is pure. There's a call to something greater. The God we serve is complex. And the nuances of faith can be stressful they can be stressful as a preacher because, you know what? I want to see, see these seats filled. And it's easy to start preaching things that just make us feel good. But I don't want to do that. I don't want to strip you of the truth to know that there is work that's involved. There is work that's involved in living a life that reflects and radiates who Jesus Christ is. It's the kingdom that's now and not yet. And the fact that we are saved by grace alone does not negate the fact that there's this call to holiness and to pursue purity. But the reality is, is our faith journey on this side of glory, that's Christianese for not dead, but this side of our faith journey means that we are much like the couple who's engaged to be married. We prepare for the future while we make the very most of what we've been given and we work hard at it. Because we take comfort in knowing that the king has come. The king has dealt sin, death's blow, for the last time for all people. The king, Jesus, has delivered us from an eternity apart from him if we choose. So I would call you to incur, and I would call you right now to invest in your now. Invest in what it means to be here now. I mean that in all aspects of life. 
If you're in school right now and you're grinding because midterms are either happening or they've just happened or, you know what, you don't even care about midterms because you know finals are coming. You know, I would encourage you, make the most of it now. Don't just, don't just think that happiness is Christmas break. Yeah, you think so until you get on the scale in January and you realize that Christmas is also 10 pounds. And now you're feeling bad going back into second semester because you're a little heavier and you're stressed out. If you're engaged, enjoy these moments. You stand on the bridge between your dating relationship and the one day that you get to look at that person, you get to call them husband or wife. If you're dating, enjoy this. Remember that right now you are getting the wonderful opportunity to get to know another human being in a way that many people won't. And you know what? If that relationship doesn't lead to marriage, that's okay. But let it lead to a deeper love of that person. And if you're single, remember to live in the moment. Don't wish your life away thinking that one day when you get to date somebody, you're going to be happy. Because chances are, if you put that much stock in dating, you're not going to be. Or you're going to end up in a codependent relationship that falls apart. Be secure in who you are. And friends, this is true of every stage of life. If you're at a crappy job right now and you just can't wait to get a better one, and every single day you go into work and you just think about how terrible your job is, you think about how dumb your boss is, you think about you know, how frustrating your coworkers are, you think about how you're not paid enough, and you let that negativity just swirl in your heart, as soon as you get another job, it's not going to be long before you're looking for another one. And all of a sudden you realize that the coworkers that you have now are the same as the coworkers you had before because guess what? People are people. And I mean, the list goes on and the examples go on and on and on. But the reality is, is that if we can't learn to maximize and enjoy and live in the now and prepare for what's coming, what's coming will come and we won't appreciate it. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. They're going to close in a song um, as we respond. But as they do that, I want to tell you a, a quick story a quick story about a man named Stephen Curry. I came across this story a while ago about him, and I, I know many of you who follow sports will know what I'm about to say, but I don't know if maybe you are going to get the connection here. But Stephen Curry had a, a multi-million dollar deal with Nike, which is, like, not bad, I guess. And he went to the, the, the bargaining table when it was time to renegotiate his contract, and a couple of things happened. For one, the, the, the Nike representative that was there called him Stephon Curry, which when you're dealing with one of the biggest names in basketball, you should probably get his name right. The next thing that happened was in the slideshow for their kind of uh, pitch, uh, Kevin Durant was the player in the pictures, not Stephen Curry. Which... Curry didn't even walk away at this point. It wasn't until Curry came back with another offer that in many ways, I mean, it sounds absurd to me because it was millions of dollars, but it's, in the world of sports, it, w it seemed like a fair deal. And Nike turned him down. They said, no, you're not worth that. So Curry went over to Under Armour. And Under Armour said, yeah, sure, we'll pick you up for that, no problem. 
And so Under Armour made a deal with them. And what they say that's amazing is, is not that Under Armour got Stephen Curry. And you know what? They, sales increased by some crazy number, but Under Armour would have done fine without Curry. But what's amazing is that analysts figure that Nike lost $14 billion of worth because they lost Curry. And so the reason why I tell you this story is because it points to something that we often miss. You see, we often look at the things, the tangible things that we lose. You know, we lose money, we write off a car, something happens, we pay for something, and we see a transaction that we go, that is how much that transaction is worth. What we have a much harder time doing is understanding what we lose when it's not as quantifiable. You see, Nike, because they weren't willing to do the work, because they weren't willing to go into negotiations with an open mind, because they weren't willing to look at things, because they didn't do their homework and they called him the wrong name and they put the wrong basketball player on the pictures, they potentially lost on approximately $14 billion of company worth because of that mistake. But here's the, here's the kicker. Did Nike go bankrupt? No. Will, will Nike go bankrupt? Probably not. Will Nike continue to make sale after sale after sale and fill the pockets of their executives and their shareholders with tons of money? Absolutely. And so we look at that story and it's quick to just go, whatever, like Nike's going to be fine. But friends, when we neglect to do our homework with God, and when we neglect to do the hard work of engaging in relationships, making ourselves holy and pure and fighting for that and pursuing truth, when we don't do that, you see, we're, we're, we're going to be okay. There's a promise in Scripture that God is going to welcome us with open arms because He loves us and because He's marked us as His children and when we've made the choice to follow Him, He's good on His promises. But let me just ask you this. If you choose to not live in the now and not do the hard work, what are you going to miss out on? What are you going to miss out on this life? I don't know how heaven works. I don't know if when we get there, God shows us everything that we did, which is going to be a super awkward interaction, I'm sure. But I don't know if... Th I think the thing that's the worst, that could be the worst is all the things he could show us that we missed out on because we weren't looking for him. And so do the hard work. Let's pray together as the worship team.